Okay, this week we want to press on in our study of the book of Nehemiah. We are in Nehemiah chapter 4. We are to one of possibly the most famous passages from the book of Nehemiah. In 1865, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, my favorite pastor from the past, started a newspaper in England. He called it The Sword and the Trowel. The Sword and the Trowel was a Christian paper which came out in England and it addressed the issues of the day. Now you think in 1865, what issues could there have been in the church in 1865? Real simple. In 1859, a guy named Charles Darwin introduced a book that said men were descended from monkeys and monkeys were descended from pond scum and pond scum came from nowhere. So the whole concept of evolution hit Europe in 1859. By 1865, Charles Haddon Spurgeon saw such a problem in the church, such a lack of knowledge, that he decided to publish his paper, The Sword and the Trowel. He took its title from chapter 4 of the book of Nehemiah. Now, if you don't think that those things go on today, let me give you one that I'm hearing on my campus. I didn't even know what panspermia was until someone said panspermia, and I had to look up panspermia because I went, what could that be? And it literally is this. People have decided we did not come from pond scum. We did not evolve from monkeys. That somehow all of the origin of life came to the earth on comets and asteroids and meteorites that fell on the primordial ground of earth. And then life came from life as opposed to life from death. So it's very interesting that now we see all life on earth came from outer space. I knew we'd get around to outer space sooner or later. Having been to Roswell, New Mexico, I know our obsession with aliens. So let's take a look at what this has to say about our situation today. Everyone's so desperate to explain where we came from, we're reaching for the stars, literally. All right, first thing we see in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. When someone criticizes you for your faith, then I want you to use that criticism to fuel your prayers. When someone, when someone criticizes you for your faith, use that criticism as fuel for your prayers. It says this, When Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Now think about that. There are people today in our country, in our world, who believe that Christianity is dead. They believe that the church died at the same time Friedrich Nietzsche said God is dead. Well, guess what? Friedrich Nietzsche is dead and God's still alive. And people have said that the church was dead over and over again. And guess what? We're still here. Why are we still here? Because there is a God in heaven. You see, they said, can they restore it, the walls of Jerusalem, by themselves? The first huge mistake you have to understand when you deal with the secular mind is that we are not alone. Amen? No person here, no man, woman, or child is ever alone because God is with us. Let me remind you of what Joshua learned. Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. 
Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success whatever you do and wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. Do you know which pastor calls this his heartstone, his foundation scriptures for his whole life? Do you know which one? I talk about him all the time. Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley this morning said when he was young, he was going out to preach his very first sermon. Now, this would have been somewhere in the 1400s, but that's okay, because Stanley's been around for a while. He went out to preach his first sermon. His mother looked at him and said, son, you look nervous. He said a little bit. And she said to him, this scripture, first, sorry, Joshua 1, 9. The Lord is with you wherever you go, whatever you do, be strong and courageous. She wrote it on a piece of paper. She put it in his pocket. He walked the one block from his house to the church where he was preaching. And before he went in the doors, he looked at that scripture again. Be strong and courageous. God is with you. He said throughout his whole life, he has relied on that one scripture to answer every problem and every fear he's ever had to face. Can you imagine Stanley being afraid of anything? But he said many times he's had to go back to that foundational scripture. Now, Sambalot and the others are attacking the Jews. They are trying to rebuild the walls. They have begun the work. So they ridicule them. Look at what you have to work with. Broken walls, broken, burned stones. You can't build anything from that. He goes on. Verse 3. Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up on what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return to their own head, and let them be taken as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt, and let their sin be erased from your sight, because they have provoked the builders, meaning they have discouraged them, they have torn them down. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half of its original height. For the people had the will to keep working. When Sambalot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the repairs to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. Two things they did right there. They were criticized, they were mocked, they were threatened. So they prayed to God first and they stationed a guard second. I've said before and I'll say it again. The greatest backbone of the church is prayer. A lot of people think, oh, I don't know how to do this, and I don't know how to do that, and I can't commit to VBS, and I can't teach a Sunday school class. But you can pray. You can pray for those who do. We can pray for families that are in distress. We may not be able to say something to them to help reconcile them. Maybe that job goes to a professional counselor or a pastor or, or a marriage counselor. But we can pray. 
and we can offer them our encouragement. We can encourage them in the same way that the Jews encouraged each other. These are very discouraging times. People are abandoning cities. They're going to the countryside, which means all of y'all's land is going to be a lot more valuable now because people are headed this way. They're getting away from the cities, away from population centers. They're getting out where they have some land between themselves and their fellow man. A little land makes for good neighbors. Can I get an amen? Just, you know, 40 acres or so between you and the next person. It makes for really good neighbors when you don't see them too often. But people are headed out because they are done with it. They are done with their fellow man. They are running to the suburbs to get out of those cities. Here's the thing. We have to understand that when people criticize and attack the church, and I hear this attack possibly more than you do because of where I am. I hear people say things about the church, say things about Christians, say things about church history. The second thing I want you to see here, not only do you let criticism fuel your prayer life, because when you're being attacked, you need to pray. Pray strong. Second, you need to take your enemy seriously. Now, there's some people that talk and do no actions. Can I get an amen? We all know big talkers, big boasters, big braggarts who say they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And there's really nothing behind any of their boasting or bragging or their threats. But we have an enemy, church, and that enemy is real. Take a look at this. Nehemiah 4.10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborers fails since there is so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they won't know or see anything until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. See, terror tactics, terror attacks. We saw this in every war from World War I to World War II. All the way through, we see terror tactics. If you can stop people from doing what they're doing, then they're not a threat. If Satan can make you think there's no reason to follow Christ ferociously, savagely, and completely, a sleeping Christian is not a threat to Satan's dominion. Amen? A sleeping Christian who neither speaks the gospel, nor reads the gospel, nor prays, that person doesn't have to be taken captive. They're asleep. They're under a tree. They're, they're nothing to worry about. It's the Christian who is active and vibrant and praying and seeking, that's the one that is dangerous to Satan's kingdom. It says right here, when the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, wherever you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. That's important. Where is Satan going to attack you? The devil is going to attack you at your weakest place. Where will the world attack you? At your weakest point. If you don't know the word of God, then you might be seduced into believing when someone says, oh, but the Bible says this and, and the Bible says that. I've told you before, people walk up to me and they say, well, there's a wideness in God's mercy. I go, yes, I love that song. It's just not in the Bible. There's a lot of songs that we hear on the radio. I don't want to name any stations because I actually like that station. But there's a lot of songs we hear on the radio, on Christian stations, and I'm wondering where in the word of God is any of that stuff that they're saying. There are songs that make it into the Christian realm, and I'm going, that song has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Why is that here? I've heard some songs sung in churches. You know, God bless the broken road. 
that brought me back to you. And I'm thinking, I know that song. That's about a man and his woman. It ain't about you and the Lord. I mean, you could go by implication, but I mean, why sing a song like that when you could sing something else that is directly focused upon the love and the mercy and the redemption of Jesus Christ? Ain't nothing wrong with that song. I like that song. My wife likes that song. It's great when you listen to it in the car on the way home. But when you hear it sung in church, you have to go, now wait a second, people, come on. Why are you singing that in church? Now, sometimes they try and change the words a little bit and they try and capitalize on it. But why waste your time? Why not just stick with songs that have some meat to them, that have some teaching to them? So we get back in here and say, I stationed behind the lowest points of the wall. Where is Satan going to come after you? Write it down. Take a piece of paper and say, my lowest point in the wall is. And for some people, it's their temper. For me, it's my temper. I've always had a bad temper. I'm Irish on one side and Cherokee on the other. Good Lord, we all know what that looks like. Uh, I've gotten in trouble a bunch of times in my life because somebody said something and I reacted before I thought. Can I get an amen from all the reactive people? Okay, it happens. You know, I've got a temper. That is my weak spot. I have to watch it. I have to watch that reaction that is natural to me, but is not natural to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, a man's anger does no good for the kingdom. Amen. Some people, they have a weakness in another area. I, I, fortunately, it's nobody in this church, because if it was, I would tell you. There's nobody in this church, but I know some deacons that have a disposition toward visiting some widows who are still relatively young and attractive, if you understand what I'm saying. I know some pastors who love to lay hands on and pray for people mm, that they shouldn't be touching. I visited with a guy this week, and he works on our campus, and... Um, I said, can you believe what people are wearing these days? I said, I did not know that three Band-Aids constitutes an outfit. And um, he looked at me. He says, I know a girl came into his office to get help. He looked at her one time. He said, let me get someone for you. He went back and got a woman to come up and help her with what she needed because he did not need to be within 50 feet of that girl because there wasn't anything on her. She was just about, you know, butt naked. And that's not good. You can't have that when you're trying to keep your mind and your marriage and your relationships pure. Amen? You can't be feeding that beast. See, with a dog, if you feed a dog, it'll stick around, right? I mean, if, if there's a stray dog out there and you start feeding it, watering it, it's not going to leave. That's how the thoughts are in our mind. If a thought comes into your head, that's not bad in and of itself. It happens. But when you feed it and you focus on it and you stay with it day after week after year, it can grow to be a cancer in your brain. And that might be jealousy. It might be envy. It might be anger. It might be frustration. It might be anything that you want to name that can get in your head and mess you up. One of the worst is fear. Because fear is a close cousin to unbelief. Unbelief has another name. Doubt. Do we doubt that God is good? Do we doubt that God is in control? Do we doubt that God can do what he says he can do? Do we doubt? If we do, we're kissing right up next to unbelief, and unbelief will kill you. Unbelief will take the strength right out of your Christian walk, right out of your Christian testimony. Amen? You know exactly what I'm talking about. That's what he did. It says, so we stationed people at these vulnerable areas, and he did it how? 
by families. Why? What a man won't do for another man, he will always do above and beyond for his own family. If you are there with your family and your family's lives are on the line, you will fight. You will flat get up and you will fight. You know, I always tell people wherever I go, you can say anything you want to about me. The pastor's old, the pastor's fat, the pastor's ugly. I don't care. I got a mirror I can see. But if you ever, ever, ever pick on my wife or my daughter, we're going to get into a problem. Only one church ever pushed me on that. And we walked away from it the next day. We said, bye. You don't pick on my wife and daughter. You say whatever you want to about me. You don't pick on my family. That's my vulnerable area. I protect them above all things. Amen? That's something you have to remember. You've got to protect your family. And that means you have to make the sacrifice to say what needs to be said, to do what needs to be done, to set the example for that family of how a family should work. And I'm sorry, at the end of the day, it comes right down to dad. Dad is the one who needs to stand up and be the priest of the family. Amen? For a long time, for at least 100 years, women have carried the burden of the church. And y'all know it's true, so don't say amen. Women have carried the burden of teaching and cleaning and, and, and connecting and doing all that stuff. Yeah, men work long hours and we work long shifts and we do all this stuff and commute. But we still have to be the priest of our family and then we have to do what God calls us to do. The reason why this country is falling apart is because men are so busy with themselves, they don't have time to be dad or grandpa or uncle. They don't have time to set the example for what people need to be. They said something like 80% of people who, who serve long time in jail have no fathers. Well, they have a biological dad, but they don't have a man who stood there day after week, after month, after year, after decade, and headed them in the right direction, gave them the right advice, gave them the hard lessons in life. My old man put it to me when I was young. He told me how it had to be and what I had to be to be a man. There were some things about my dad that he and I could have discussions about, but that was one thing he did. He showed me how to be a man, how to stand up, how to get it done. I learned that from him. It's taken me 57 years to learn most of those lessons. I'm a little, little slow, but I've learned them, and I remember them. Amen? So he's put them there. He says in verse 14, After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. See, you fight for family. You fight for your family. And that's what's important. We as a church are family. You know, Doug said, come in, hello, church family. We are family, and we fight for each other, and we pray for each other, and we intercede for each other, and we do for each other. That's what makes a church a church. A lot of, a lot of churches out there are just entertainment centers. You go there, and someone slaps you on the back, and you, you hoop hoop for 35 or 40 minutes of music, and you get a 10-minute devotional thought, and then you go home and, and, and don't think about it until next week. That's not family. Family is what we're going to do today is when we linger around and we, we sit there and we connect with each other and, and get to know each other and pray for each other and lift each other up. That's what family is. That's what he was encouraging them to do. 
1 Peter 5, 6-10. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now get this. Be sober-minded. That means think clearly. Be watchful. Be aware. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering that are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So whatever you're going through, other people are going through it too. You are not alone in the struggle to be faithful to God. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let me translate that. It literally means God will, one, lay a foundation in your life. Two, he will set and square that foundation to be solid and secure. Then he will build upon and restore whatever you have lost. Whatever suffering has taken from you. And let's face it, a lot of people have been through grief, have been through terrible times, have been through terrible loss. We've all lost people that we love. We have lost Family, we have lost parents and grandparents and spouses and children, especially children. Children are the hardest thing to lose. We've all been through that fire. What brought us through it? The grace of God. Because when you turn into a puddle of mush, who is it that picks you back up? Yes, your friends are there. Yes, your family's there. But when you get on your knees at night, who is it who rebuilds, resquares, reshapes, refoundations you? It's God. God rebuilds you stronger than you were when you collapsed. That's the one thing about, about having seen tornadoes and hurricanes. You can wipe out a building. But if the foundation of that building is solid, what can you do the next day? Start to rebuild it. I've seen some houses that were put up on bad foundations. Beautiful houses built on cracked foundations. And within a very short period of time, what happens? Walls start to sink. Cracks in the wall. Cracks in the roof. Beautiful. You know, $300,000 houses on a faulty foundation. They will collapse. You'll have to destroy the house, destroy the foundation, and rebuild it from the ground up. When you became a Christian, God wrecked the foundation of what you were as a human being. He destroyed that foundation that was built on me, myself, and I. He built a new foundation called Jesus Christ. And then it is, like Paul says, Paul says, I built upon it and others build upon it and you build upon it. But we build upon what God has already started. God started the work in Jerusalem. God began them to rebuild the walls by putting in Nehemiah's heart to go and fire them up to do it. Our job is to fire up people to rebuild, reestablish that relationship with God. When your life falls apart, you know, I was telling Miss Helen earlier, I literally don't know how long I'm going to have a job for. I thought I had a job till maybe, you know, the middle of December, but it's looking more and more like they're going to shut us down at the first week of November. And if they keep going the way they're going, they're going to shut me down in October. I'll be out of work. Am I worried? No, not really. I haven't lost any sleep over it because you know why? My God is not broke. My God can put me anywhere he wants to put me, give me any job he can give me, and I will be just fine because God has a plan for my life. And if that plan is to take me away from what I'm used to and take me somewhere new, 
maybe a different job at U of H, maybe a job in Baytown, I don't know. All I can do is follow him no matter what happens. And he will still be that solid foundation. So you have to take that criticism from others and let it fuel your prayers. Pray hard and then act. Remember, you, you've got to pray and station a guard over your heart. You've got to look for the low places, okay? Your enemy is real. Our enemy is not our next door neighbor. It's not that person in the family that you just can't stand. It's not that other person that you're jealous of or envious of or they're just a jerk. Those are not our enemies. And people, your spouse is not your enemy. Your spouse is the best thing in your life after the Lord your God. If your spouse is there, you can be thanking God that that person is there. They may not be perfect. My wife cannot say she married the prettiest man. Second prettiest man, maybe after Doug. But she, you can't say she married a rich man. When my wife was little, she prayed, Lord, I want to marry a rich man. God thought she said, I want to marry Richard. And there she did. So she, she laments to this day that she was not more specific with the Lord on that one. All we have is what God has given us. But what he's given us is enough. If we are thankful for it, if we are grateful for it. Remember, if stones are broken, if stones are burned, they can be cleared away. If you wrecked your life, and there's a lot of marriages that are wrecked right now. They're wrecked by actions, loose words, loose behavior. Anything on a solid foundation can be saved. Any marriage, any relationship, any friendship can be saved if the foundation is solid. You may have to do a lot of work to rebuild it, but you can still rebuild it. It can be rebuilt. The last thing I want you to see is this. After you know your enemy's real, you got to pick up the sword and the trowel. Take a look at this. Nehemiah 4, 15. When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, notice our enemies knew that God had frustrated it. Now you're not fighting the Jews, you're fighting the God of the Jews, and that's where you should start running. And they knew that God had frustrated. Every one of us returned to our work on the wall. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. You're not going to catch us sleeping, no way. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Usually it meant they had a weapon at hand. Sometimes if you're putting down brick, you got to use both hands. But there was a weapon at hand. So they were always ready to fight in the middle of their work. Each of the builders had a sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside him. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. During the week, we feel separated from each other. Maybe it's just because I live in Baytown, y'all live up here. Maybe you live out in the middle of nowhere or just past the middle of nowhere. Actually, I've heard some of y'all live on the far side of nowhere, and that's okay. Wherever you happen to live, you may feel cut off from people. I know our kids. Our kids feel cut off because they're not around all of their friends. And that's, that's just life in this modern day and age. So he says, the work is enormous, spread out. We are separated far from another on the wall. Whenever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servant spend the night inside Jerusalem. Why? 
Remember I told you about walls? Walls are security. Walls are protection. Walls are where you know you have a safe place. That's why the church of God should be a walled citadel. Within these walls, only the word of God should be spoken, not men's opinions, not popular theory, not popular contrivances. And it says this, let everyone and the servant spend the night inside Jerusalem so they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my men, and the guards with me never took off our clothing. Now, ladies, if you have a hardworking man, you can identify with what this means. Okay, we never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon even when washing. So wary were they that even if they stripped off a shirt to wash their bodies or to cleanse themselves, they still had a sword on them so that they could never be caught off guard. That's how real they perceived the danger to be. That's how real the threat was. Yet they were not afraid. They were still willing to press on and do whatever was necessary. I think that's absolutely amazing that these men were so committed. Look at the very last thing I want you to look at. James 4, 4 through 8. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God desires our attention to be on him. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I heard the story of, of, a, of a young man and, and a young lady. They got married. And at the wedding, at the wedding banquet, the, uh, the groom spent more time talking to the bride's younger sister then to his wife. You can imagine what happened to that marriage within a very short period of time. Your attention needs to be on the one you love. It needs to be on the... God says, I want you to pay attention to me. Don't pay attention to your enemies. Don't pay attention to these people over here or those people over there or what they're saying back here. Look at me. Pay attention to me. I have put my spirit in you. I am jealous to keep you to myself because I can instruct you. I can help you. I can teach you what you need to know. But it gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, here's how we stay committed to the one who has called us. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God before anything. Submit to God. God, this world is yours. My life is yours. All of these plans I have, Father, these are your plans. Help me to follow them out. Help me to follow you above all things and go wherever you take me. So submit to God. Then resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, everyone leaves the first part of that verse out. They go, oh, just resist the devil and he'll flee. No, it's not what it says. It says submit to God. Then when you're in submission, you resist the devil. Then, because you are submitted to God and resisting him, then he flees. Because why? He can fight you, but he can't fight God. He tried that once and it got kicked out of heaven. We all know that passage. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The double-minded is the important part. Don't doubt that God will do what God's going to do. Don't doubt that God loves you, that God is going to take care of you, that God is going to be with you. You know, if I could speak to a couple that were having marriage trouble, I would say, here's the thing. Man, you need to submit to God. Woman, you need to submit to God. Then 
You need to resist the devil, which is tearing you apart, and submit to each other. But see, you have to fix your relationship with God before you can fix your relationship with each other. That's the important thing about a Christian marriage. A Christian marriage recognizes there's a third person in the marriage, and it's God. It's God who heals. It's God who knits together. It's God who binds together. That's why it says what God has bound together, don't let anybody try and get in the middle of that. Don't let anybody try to separate it because God is the one who ties husband and wife together. If we ever forget that, then whatever it is that holds us together loses its strength, loses its power. So we look at this chapter four, and now I know why Charles Stanley loves it so much. Because it is the perfect example of our lives. Our lives are a matter of building our walk with God. And there are lots of voices that try and tear that down, that try and slow it down, that try and distract us. But we submit to God. We resist all these other temptations. Those things will flee from us, and then we can keep doing the work of building that defensive perimeter around our life, around our marriage, around our family, and when those walls are up and we're safe, then we can be together. Amen? Let's pray. 